So that's a real treat for us today to have, to have the Nazario brothers, Andrew and Michael, here with us, and mom and dad down front here. Appreciate you guys with various challenges today. But uh, yeah, thank you for that, for doing such a good job for us. And I appreciate uh, Mark Neymar helping us out. If you don't know him, he is uh, one of our elders and a uh, very appreciated part of this community as an elder and, and uh, also involved over at Fleece at the elementary school on the board over there and finance committee and just plays a lot of important roles around here if you haven't gotten a chance to meet him. So appreciate that good job. And uh, with Pastor Evan being gone today, of course, uh, Tony helping us with the songs and Clifton with the offering. So whole different cast of characters today, except for me. Except for me. All right. It's also uh, Forest Lake Academy Parent Weekend. So that uh, often gives us a little more room in here today. Uh, so uh, we pray all is going well over there at Parent Weekend. So, all right. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit will be with us today. Grant us wisdom and understanding. Lord, speak to us the message you would have our hearts here. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've spent two weeks already, two different Sabbaths, considering the prophecies of Daniel 7. And last Sabbath, we went over this and related to history, and it was pretty heavy. And uh, I, I got to tell you, today's going to be kind of heavy again. But it's all right. I know you can handle it. And we've built up to this point, and you'll be glad to have this background and this understanding, to know that we're not just chasing after cleverly uh, contrived fables and so forth when we say different things. There's, there's solid basis for why we've concluded different things we have in our systems and in our belief. And we're going to talk about that some more today. So you're going to need to be sharp and you're going to need to follow along here uh, as we establish a few interesting but also troubling points. We've aligned so far from Daniel 7, we've aligned each of the beasts that are depicted in this prophecy with the prophecy in Daniel 2. You remember we've talked about Daniel 2 as the big framing prophecy for all uh, biblical time prophecies. So we've aligned the beasts from Daniel 7 with Daniel 2 and we've identified each in order, not just by default, but also by characteristics. If you'll remember, in Daniel 7, there's a bear in Daniel 7 and it's described as being raised up on one side. Well, history has shown us that that was the Medes and the Persians who came together to make an empire, but it was never a balanced empire. One of the peoples was always stronger than the other. We saw the four-headed leopard with four wings. Well, Wings indicate speed, four wings indicate great speed. And this was Greece that conquered the region in, in an amazingly rapid, rapid time. And then at the height of their power, Alexander dies and it's split into four, four heads. So, so these things align. And then that last beast with iron teeth that crushed described Rome so effectively. Then this last Sabbath, we considered the ten horns on this last beast and the other horn that came up in their midst. And we went to history to gain insight and as a result came to a rather startling conclusion. 
The horn that comes up later that displaces three of the horns is actually the church. It's not the church as it was meant to be, but rather it is the church now transformed from the kingdom not of this world to a kingdom of this world. And if you recall from last Sabbath, we talked about what drove this transformation. Do you remember? Conflict. Conflict in the world, conflict in the church. One point I wanted you to understand last Sabbath was that it wasn't some terrible human plot established early on that led to what the church became. Now, I will concede it was a diabolical plot in the truest sense of that term. In other words, the devil had plans against God's purpose, but it wasn't some terrible human plot that put us where we ended up. Rather, it was in the course of trying to be the church that the church lost touch with its true mission to be the kingdom not of this world. And bit by bit, day by day, became like the kingdoms of the world, only worse. Why do I say worse? Because even though sometime before the church had lost its way, it still claimed spiritual authority, thus adding a whole new level of coercive power above and beyond that of the surrounding nations. Not only had the church by now become a temporal power with lands under its command, it also had the power to destabilize other lands that it didn't specifically control simply by setting the believing populations in those lands against their rulers by edict. All of this was enabled by a unique reality of Christianity. You see, Christianity was one of the very first faiths to ever escape being either regional or ethnocentric. Recall, when we looked at the story of Nebuchadnezzar, that when he would refer to Daniel, he would often, and refer to Daniel's God, he would also refer to the God of heaven by saying, the God of Daniel, or the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he still himself said that he worshiped the gods of Babylon. In that day, gods were thought to be geographical and ethnic, and as a general rule, you didn't worship other people's gods. Yahweh was thought to be the God of the Jews, not the God of all. That's why he was referred to as the most high God, was the notion it was there were others. Yet Christianity would escape this narrowness, but this escape was not easy, and it wasn't easy for the Christians. Remember, the church starts out as a little Jewish sect in the city of Jerusalem, about 120 people. And it only begins to spread significantly outside of Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen. The Bible tells us after the stoning of Stephen, a general persecution broke out and the Christians were driven from Jerusalem and everywhere they went, they spread their belief. But still, it's just with the Jews. 
And then comes Peter's vision where he sees a sheet lowered down from heaven and in it all kinds of unclean animals. And God says, kill and eat. And he says, I've never, I've never eaten anything unclean. Well, it turns out that's not really about diet, that vision. That's about what God is about to do. And it's at this point that there's a knock on the door and he gets an invitation to go to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile, and teach him about Jesus. So he goes reluctantly and in the midst of his preaching, before they even get to the point where they would call for baptism or put him in the water, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. And Peter's stunned. And he finally says, well, I guess we have to baptize him now, right? So he does, and guess what that caused when he got back to Jerusalem? Conflict comes up all the time in the church, doesn't it? Then the believers in Antioch started teaching Gentiles, and then Paul got involved, and before you know it, there are as many or even more Gentile believers than Jewish believers, and the church is changing. Christianity at this point was far from being prominent in the realm of Rome, but it was present, and it was spreading to almost every region that the Roman Empire touched. Later on, even with the collapse of Rome, it was not also the collapse of Christianity because the Christian faith or a form of it would then begin to infiltrate its way and transform the barbarian cultures into which the Western Roman Empire had devolved. So Christianity had moved beyond a geographic or ethnocentric box and was now spreading everywhere. And on the one hand, this was all wonderful news and would have made for a wonderful missions report at any upcoming church council. We would have amened ourselves silly to a report like that. But even as the church expanded and grew and conquered in the name of Jesus, there was a sickness at its core. A sickness that grows in any entity when it ceases being the kingdom not of this world, and starts to become a kingdom of the world. And I think at this point, it is useful for us to step back for just a moment because to some, it seems offensive to suggest that a movement initiated by God could go wrong. To which I would answer, have you never read the Old Testament? Because isn't that one story after another of movements initiated by God going wrong? Without going into too much detail, let's engage this thought experiment. How many of you agree Israel in the Old Testament was God's people called to a special purpose? Do we agree on that? All right, we're good there. How many recognize it was Israel and Judah's failure to live up to that calling that led to the captivity in Babylon? Are we in agreement? Okay. How many believe that when the captivity was over and they returned to the land in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, that they really did intend to be faithful this time? They meant that, right? How many would say that by the time Jesus came along, they'd pretty well lost their way? Yeah. Okay, so we have history here, right? The Jews began to return from captivity around 538 BC, which obviously about 500 years before Jesus would be born. And by the time Jesus appears, after 500 years, the religion of the people is in a pretty sad state. 
So one could speculate that it is certainly believable that a faith system that meant well can be pretty well derailed and corrupted after 500 years. The prophecy of Daniel 7 indicates the little horn that arises and is similar yet different from the others does so after Rome has collapsed and the barbarian kingdoms have begun to be established. Isn't it interesting that this all happens about 500 years after Jesus? So if the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah can in 500 years degenerate into the Pharisees and the Sadducees, then isn't it possible that the once pure Christianity of the apostles might, in the face of conflict, also be prone to degeneration in the course of 500 years? And isn't that especially true as the faith went from obscurity to oppression, to acceptance, to a position of dominance and acclaim? It is hard to not become a kingdom of the world, especially when doing so seems to be in yours and the world's best interest. I believe it was in the process of trying to be the church that the church lost touch with its true mission to be a kingdom not of this world and, and instead became like the kingdoms of the world, only worse. Something about the acquisition of real world stuff like churches and institutions and positions of respect and authority in the world, something about all that makes it very hard for us sometimes to be able to make good decisions. I'll give you an example. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which I think we would agree is a very good thing, right? There was a meeting of the Sanhedrin where they are quoted as saying, John 11, verse 47, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, resurrecting dead people, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Do you see what's happening here? The drive for institutional preservation has so totally eclipsed mission that they can't even recognize mission when it happens and feel they have to persecute and destroy the one who's on mission. What I'm suggesting to you and what I believe Daniel 7 is telling us is this is what happened to the church. And it got ugly for a while. Daniel 7, verse 7, after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So far, we have focused on the history that leads us to identify this horn as the church. 
Today I want to look at the part of the prophecy that upset Daniel the most, the part that tells what this little horn did. Verse 19, then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, now catch this verse. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. What a terrible thought it is, isn't it? That the day would come when the largest impediment to God's purpose and His holy people would be the church. And in fact, more than just an impediment, indeed, a persecutor waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Verse 23, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Okay. We need to unpack this. First, let's take the big picture. A different kind of power would arise from among the ten barbarian nations, a power that would speak against God, that would oppress God's people, and would seek to change stuff. And the holy people would be subject to that power for a set time. As we saw last Sabbath, this different power is the church become a kingdom of the world. And having become of a similar nature to the kingdoms of the world, the church too begins to persecute and to oppress. According to the prophecy, this power we have identified as the church speaks boastfully. A notion explained to Daniel is meaning speaking against the Most High, oppressing his people, and trying to change times and laws that God has established. There's an interesting literary link between Daniel 7.25 and Daniel 2.21, where the identical Aramaic words for change and time are used with the context of both showing what the true offense of this little horn is. The context in Daniel 2, God has just given Daniel the dream that he gave Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that story? The dream telling the future of the kingdoms of the Mediterranean region until the end. And in this context, we read this, verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Now notice this next verse. He 
changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. So who is Daniel saying is in charge of the kingdoms of the world to set them up and take them down? God. So the point of the phrase is that God alone has the authority to change the times and seasons of the empires and the nations of the earth. But now there's this new power. And what does this new power want to do? Daniel 7, 25. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times. What the text tells us is now there will be another power on the earth that will seek God's authority to establish and take down the kingdoms of the earth. And in addition, this power is said to try to change laws, meaning not mere civil laws, which change all the time, but laws established by God himself. One example of this that we as Adventists have noted since our earliest days is the manner in which the church abandoned the seventh-day Sabbath and substituted Sunday, the first day in its place. This power may think to make such changes and in fact by weight of time and weight of tradition draw the world into its new reality. But there's a big difference between trying to change God's law and actually changing God's law because you can't change God's law. But there is also what might seem cryptic language at the end of the passage of Daniel 7 that seems to indicate a time period. Daniel 7:25, the last part, the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. What does this mean? Well, do you remember the story from Daniel 4? The story when King Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind? Daniel 4, verse 25, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, isn't it interesting, the language there at the end sounds like somebody else was getting a little boastful before God about who was in charge of the nations, doesn't it? Yeah, but it, but it says this, seven times will pass by for you. Seven times means seven years. Seven times through the yearly cycle, which we now know means seven circuits around the sun. So what does time, times, and half a time mean? Well, time is one year. Times is two years, and half a time is a half year. So you add it all together, you've got three and a half years. Now, I need you to go with me on this next part, for, for we're going to apply this statement of time in a very specific way, but I don't have time today to completely explain to you why we're going to do it this way. What I need you to do today is just go with me on this and see what happens, and we will, on upcoming Sabbaths, put more detail into why we are making this interpretation. We will cover it. We just can't do it today. So here we go. What I need you to accept today without any detailed process is that in the prophecies of Daniel, a prophetic day stands for a literal year. 
You will see this clearly demonstrated in a way no one argues against when we get to Daniel 9. But we haven't gotten to Daniel 9 yet, so you're just going to have to trust me on this today. Go with me on this. So how many days are there in three and a half years? Well, today we would say that 365 days in a year times three and a half is 1,277.5 days because we operate with a solar calendar. But this was not the case in Daniel's day. Neither the Babylonians nor the Jews used that calendar. They used a lunar calendar based on the appearance of the new moon roughly every 30 days. Now, obviously, before long, your calendar would start to get messed up because there'd be five days different every year. So that meant after about six or seven years, you're a whole month off now. Well, the way that the Jews handled this was if the new moon didn't appear by a certain point on a certain year, you just added another month for that year and then you caught back up and that way the calendar didn't get behind so if the year in the time of Daniel was made up of 12 months of 30 days each how many days are there in three and a half years well so now you've got 360 for one year 720 for two years 180 for half so you have 1260 so the prophecy says the holy people will be delivered into the hand of the little horn power for 1,260 days, which you are trusting me today means 1,260 years. And that's a long time. So the question, did it happen? Remember when we talked about how Justinian, the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, declared war on the three barbarian tribes who embraced a non-Orthodox understanding of the Trinity? We talked about that last Sabbath. Justinian first defeated the Vandals in North Africa, then he crossed over to Sicily, and then on to the Italian peninsula and moving northward until he finally cleared the barbarians from Rome for the first time in 60 years, leaving behind the bishop of the Church of Rome as the primary civil authority in the region. Do you remember what year we said that happened in? It happened in the year 538 A.D., so let's do something crazy. Let's take that date and make it our starting point, and then let's add the length of time the prophecy states to that number, and then ask ourselves, does this fit? So we're gonna take 538, and we're gonna add 1,260 to it, and we're gonna come up with 1798. That's not that long ago, is it? If we look at history, would it be accurate to say that the Christian church on earth was dominated over the bulk of this period of time by the leadership of the Church of Rome? Would that be accurate to say from 538 to 1798? Indeed it was, with the church so powerful in the affairs of the world at the time that it initiated the Crusades, it even sought at times to remove kings from thrones, as well as being responsible for persecutions against heretics, such as inquisitions and purges against the Waldensians and the Huguenots. Yes, yes, there's a lot of history there. But is there anything significant regarding the church related to the year 1798? To that, we need to look at world history. 
It would be just 22 years before this date, another important date. Maybe you've heard of this one, 1776. Does that ring a bell with anybody? 1776 would see the establishment of a nation Protestant by nature, but not by law, the United States. A nation completely outside the realm of influence of the medieval church in Europe. That would be the United States. So a new reality in world power would be rising. And then in 1789 would come the storming of the Bastille and then the French Revolution, which led to the downfall of the French monarchy and then the reign of terror and then the rise of Napoleon. And by the 1790s, the Church of Rome had lost its sway over most of Europe, which by now had become either Protestant or as a result of the Enlightenment, downright hostile to religion. Okay, but did anything happen in 1798 exactly? Anything that could serve as a bookend to the idea of Justinian clearing barbarians from Rome. Did anything happen in 1798? Well, yes it did. For in 1798, the sons of the barbarians returned and removed the leader of the church from the Vatican. You see, it went like this. The French General Berthier leading Napoleon's armies of France armies of France, soldiers descended from the Franks, one of the original ten barbarian tribes, marched into Rome again all these long years later and put an end to the church's reign of terror. And it all happened just like Daniel 7 said it would even though there was no way Daniel could have ever understood his own prophecy when he saw it and wrote it down. But we can, and it is for us that prophecy is given. But I want to take a step further today. Because even more than the lesson of what this prophecy reveals, I believe there is another lesson for us today one extremely pertinent to our lives, not just because of the recent increase in the influence of the head of the Church of Rome, but because of some decisions that we as a Seventh-day Adventist world church have been making recently. I spent time last week showing you how the church went from an oppressed Jewish sect to a dominant earthly power. Today I want to take a crack at explaining why. Last week I talked about how conflict drove the church and challenged the church and changed the church. Now let me tell you why I believe conflict brought about those changes and why I believe conflict is changing us in a similar way today and could, if given enough time, make a beast out of even us. Remember, we've only had about 150 years of history. But given our current trajectory, where do you suppose we would be after 500 years? What I want to talk about as we wrap this up today is authority. Authority is a funny thing. 
For it is something we absolutely must have and must respect, yet authority is so easily perverted and turned from a hedge against anarchy into a source of affliction. So why am I talking about authority? And what does it have to do with conflict and the change of the church? Just this. Authority is where we turn when we can't settle conflicts between ourselves. Do you remember last week I told you about that book by Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs, and Steel, and how he defines three different kinds of conflict? There's conflict between people who know each other. It's, it's kind of family conflict, and it, it can be resolved very directly. And then you have conflict between people who don't necessarily know each other, but they, they both know someone else, and that one can play a role to mediate that conflict. But then there's the third kind of conflict between strangers. They don't know each other, and they don't know anyone in common. It is because of that kind of conflict that we establish authorities like police forces and, and courts and legislatures and governors. As we reflected last week on the church, remember how I spoke of the conflicts that arose in the church all the way back to the days of the apostles? As the church grew, conflict resolution became more and more complex. And the church found itself frequently on the brink of either anarchy or schism. Sometimes in such a, uh, such a situation, a particular bishop would arise and would be able to talk to both sides and, and bring some kind of a resolution. Other times it took a council decision. Sometimes the conflicts never really got settled at all. And as anyone who has lived in the midst of conflict can tell you, it isn't very fun, is it? And eventually you get so tired of conflict, you just wish someone would once and for all settle things so we could go back to living in peace with one another. Have you ever felt like that? It is when we feel this way that we seek out authority. We finally reach the place where we are willing to sacrifice a bit of our freedom for the sake of peace. And so we give a bit of our freedom to our chosen authority and wait for him or her or they or it to set our world aright. This is how it's always been in the church. And this is how it remains today. We start out thinking we all believe the same way, but then a perceived lack of doctrinal, align doctrinal alignment leads us to writing out our statements of faith. Then disagreements over our statements of faith leads to an itemization of beliefs. Then disagreement over interpretation of beliefs leads to detailed refinements. And detailed refinements over time turn into creeds. And then we all agree to pledge loyalty to the wording of the creed and all agree that anyone who does not is not one of us. And then we use the creed as our authority by which to throw one another out of the church. We didn't invent this game. 
There's another way we can play. We find someone that we respect as a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist, and then we commit ourselves to that one's doctrine in exclusion of most or all of other voices, and we accept this person's word as authoritative for us, an act that renders us likely to believe anything this individual says, even when they are way outside their area of knowledge or expertise. This road has been trodden by the church many times before, and it's the road that leads to bishops and archbishops and popes. The church through the ages has marched down both of these roads time after time after time. And if history is any guide, it never ends well. There is no creed perfect enough. There is no leader righteous enough. We will never in this world find any authority upon which we can place all our hopes. I too long for an end to conflict in the world, an end to conflict in the church, but there is a limit to which I will grant any man or woman or organization in this world the authority to see to it peace is established and maintained, for no kingdom of the world has ever been able to achieve by human means the end of conflict. I'm tired of our pseudo-credalism and creeping theological authoritarianism all enacted in the name of unity and order. I'm tired of the drive to centralize ecclesial authority and the tacit regional leadership that lets it happen. And I'm tired of the mentality that says truth is what we establish by a majority vote. And anything we vote must therefore be truth. A wise man I know once wrote, there is a tendency in us to assume that truth is the derivative of authority. And this is the case in the force model, which is not acceptable as a Christian viewpoint. But it does not present a valid image of God who appeals to reason among free-willed individuals. Authority is a derivative of truth. And when authority deviates from truth, it is no longer reliable as an authority. That is how we know not to trust it. Maybe you know that guy. That's my dad. The early church did not become the little horn overnight. It took 500 years. How long would it take us? But it doesn't have to happen. Nothing says we have to travel the road of the Church of Rome. We could choose another path, a more humble path where we aren't willing to kill Jesus just because to not do so would mean we might lose our temple and our nation. But the thing about the humble path is it could cost us our kingdom of this world. Yet we were never meant to be a kingdom of this world. We were meant to be the kingdom not 
of this world. So feel free to go on with the theological wrangling and arguments over words such as how long a creation day is or exactly who can and can't be ordained and write whatever pseudo-creed you think will help. As for me, I'm going back to where we started. The Bible is my only creed. And no, I don't need a detailed five-year study to tell me how to read it. And as for authority, well, there is only one whose full authority I accept over our lives. The only one who received his kingdom before the royal court of heaven. Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you see, it all ends right here again with Jesus. Only he is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. For he is the king of the kingdom not of this world, the kingdom given him by his Father, the kingdom that will never pass away. And to him alone we cry, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pledge ourselves to Jesus. We call him king this day. All authority we grant him. May we be subject to his rule and his word. In Jesus' name, amen.